Well, good morning, church family. You can open up your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 7. I'll meet you there in a minute. You know, before God provided this facility for us here in the uh, north end of Mississauga, our church met in an elementary school in South Brampton, and we had as our office space sort of this sketchy, burned-out nightclub that we had converted uh, into a ministry center on Kennedy Road in uh, sort of central Brampton. And in our lunchroom, we had this big massive whiteboard sticker on the wall where we would we would have our staff meetings in there and would would use the whiteboard to plan things or map things out and one day I remember coming out of my office and uh, Hamal Gandhi who uh, used to be on our staff was sitting there with Chris Shipley and I looked on the whiteboard and all over the whiteboard I saw all of these names like Iron Man, Tony Stark, Stark Industries and then Wanda Maximoff and I, and I saw I saw Guardians of the Galaxy and all of these different comic book characters and a line being drawn over here and a dotted line this way. And what was happening is Hamal was trying to explain to Chris the, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, all of the different connections, how these different characters interact and interplay with one another, how their different stories overlap with one another. When did this character's story begin? How does that relate to this other character? How does it all fit together? And you know what? As we've been going through this storyline of Scripture, a series, the, the section of the Bible that we are about to come to right now requires a little bit of mapping things out to see how these different stories overlap. We're all familiar with, with Bible characters like David and Elijah, Isaiah, Solomon, Jonah, Jeremiah, Jehoshaphat, Jezebel. We, we know all of these names. We've heard all of these stories, but the section that we're about to study right now covers about 425 years of history in which all of those Bible characters overlap with one another and form one cohesive, united story. You see, the Bible as it comes to us is sorted according to genre. Let me show you what I mean. Here's a quick diagram I shared with you last week. We have the Pentateuch, which means five books. That's the first five books of Moses. Then the history, the poetry section, followed by the prophets. But as we dive into 2 Samuel today, we're going to, we're going to see that, so, that all of these different genres overlap with one another. Let me show you another diagram. So we're going to be following the story today of 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, and 2 Kings. That's the history section at the top. But 1st and 2 Chronicles retell those stories again. And at the same time, poetry is being written. The book of Psalms, the book of Proverbs was written by Solomon, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs as well. And then we also have prophetic books that were commenting on the things that were taking place as the history was being unfolded. So books like Isaiah and Jeremiah, Obadiah, Amos, Nahum, and all of these books overlap and intersect with one another. So the title for today's message is Disobedience, Division, and Defeat. Disobedience, Division, and Defeat. Not exactly the most uplifting of stories to, to follow along the Marvel Cinematic Universe theme. We're gonna, it's going to feel a little bit like Captain America Civil War, okay? The nation is going to be divided in two. It, it's going to feel a little bit like Spider-Man, Far From Home, but trust me, this is not a matter of Avengers Endgame. 
that the story is definitely going to fall into decline. This is a sad part of the story, but the story nonetheless is not over. And understanding this part of the story is vitally important for us as a church. As I think about the church in North America right now, I, I, I see leaders failing. I see followers struggling. I see the church becoming more and more divided as, as different issues politically or culturally arise. I see so much rather than the church influencing and informing the culture. I see the culture influencing the church. And that's what we're going to see in this story of disobedience, division, and defeat. So loved ones, this is a, this is a, a part of the biblical story that we need to become more familiar. It's going to require some thinking. As I mapped it out, there's a lot of interplay. There's a lot of overlap. The different genres within the Old Testament are all going to interplay in order for us to understand this story. But here's what I want us to get. Disobedience, division, and defeat of God's people cannot stop the power and permanence of God's plan. The disobedience, division, and defeat of God's people cannot stop the power and the permanence of God's plan. This is a sad part of the story, but this is not the end of the story. As circumstances get darker and more painful, the promises of God get clearer and more precious. That's what we're going to find today. When I think about this part of God's word, I think about when, when I go skiing, which is an activity that I love to do together with my family. Now, skiing is one of those unique individual sports that's also sort of an indirect spectator sport because of chairlifts. As you're skiing down the hill, there's always people up above you watching what you're doing. And in skiing, there's something that can happen on a hill, particularly on a more difficult, on a steep hill or with icy conditions. It's something called a yard sale. And what a yard sale is, is if someone, when they're skiing down the hill, if they start to lose their balance and fall over, maybe they'll drop one pole as they're falling and tumbling. And then another ski pole goes flying. And then skis are actually spring-loaded to come off so that you don't bang your head off these massive skis attached. So your skis start flying off. And so you tumble down the hill. Your poles go everywhere. Your skis go everywhere. And then eventually you fall down, tumble to the bottom of the hill. And you look up and there's your poles way up at the top. And your skis are hanging off a tree branch over here. And that is called a yard sale. It's like you're selling your equipment and you've laid it out for everyone to see. And this part of the story is a little bit like a yard sale. The, the, the kingdom of Israel, the, 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 the Davidic dynasty starts to stumble and fall and everyone can see it. Everyone can see that it's falling apart. And so we dive in now to 2 Samuel chapter 11. Up until this point, David has established Jerusalem as the capital city. He's brought the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. He has a desire to build the temple, but God says, not you and not yet. He says, one of your offspring will build the temple. He says, he says in fact, one of your offspring, long after you're dead, one of your offspring is going to sit on your throne forever. 
And so we sort of left at this high point in in 2 Samuel 7. As we come to 2 Samuel chapter 11, it says, In the spring of the year, in the time when kings go out to battle, in the time where a king like David would go out to battle, it says in, in, in that time of the year, David didn't go into battle. He sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. So David decided, I'm not going to do what kings do. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to stay home. In verse 2 it says, And it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. Now what the next verse should say is, So David turned his eyes away, went back into his room and and didn't give in to temptation. That's what should have happened. David, like Joseph, should have fled from temptation. But instead, David continued to look and then he inquired. And then Bathsheba is in his house and then they're sleeping together and then she's pregnant and then he's murdered her husband. David is later confronted by the prophet Nathan in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 9 and 10. David is starting to stumble and fall. The equipment is starting to to come off here. It says, Nathan says, Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and has taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house. That same house that that God had promised would, would, that David would have an offspring that would sit on his throne forever. It says that the sword would never depart from that house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. David has committed adultery. David has committed murder. And then this prophecy now says that the sword will not depart from David's house. This is the, this is the downfall of the dynasty. If you're taking notes today, here's the first point I want you to jot down. The downfall of the dynasty. And this is what eventually happens. David had, had in, in the chapters leading up to this, had gotten in the habit of just taking women to be his wife normally single women, uh, once a widower like Abigail, but David was just in the habit of saying, I like you, I'm going to take you to be my wife. And then he took Bathsheba to be his wife. The only problem was, is that Bathsheba was already married. So David committed adultery and then he committed murder. And the consequence for David's sin, the consequence for his downfall was that the sword would not depart from his house. And that was true. The infant that Bathsheba was pregnant with died. Later on, one of his sons rapes one of his daughters. And then another son kills that son and leads a coup to try to overthrow David's rule and dynasty. Out of this dysfunctional family, multiple multiple mothers, all these children, all at odds with one another, Solomon emerges as the heir to the throne. And Solomon is the one who builds the temple. And it seems temporarily that, that, that as Solomon is, is in place now, as he is sitting on the throne, it seems like, okay, everything's good now. Those were a couple of rough years in David's family. David stumbled and fell. But Solomon seems to have gotten the train back on track. And we learn about Solomon in the next book of the Bible in, in 1 Kings. Turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 8 and find verse 10. Everything seems to be going really well for Solomon. 
In 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 10 and 11, it says, And when the priests came out of the whole, sorry, Solomon built the temple. And, and here we have the temple being opened up. And in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 10, it says, When the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. So here we have Solomon. He's the one. He's built the temple, just like the promise in 2 Samuel 7. Check. The temple is built. And God shows that his presence is going to dwell in that temple. Just like Exodus 40, when the tabernacle was built, the cloud came as a symbol of God's presence. Here the temple has been built. Same thing. The cloud comes to fill the temple, showing God's presence. Solomon then prays this great prayer of, of dedication. In, in 1 Kings 8, verse 56, look at what Solomon says. Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promise, which he spoke by Moses, his servant. Solomon says the same thing that Joshua said when they moved into the promised land. Not one word of God's promises. And, and Solomon here is rejoicing in God's goodness and his faithfulness. This seems like the apex. This seems like, like the pinnacle. This seems like the absolute height. I thought this point was about the downfall of the dynasty. This seems like things are going great. The temple's built. The cloud has come. God's presence is with the people. As we keep reading, look at 1 Kings chapter 10. The queen of Sheba arrives seeking to learn from Solomon and all of his wisdom. Solomon wrote the book of Proverbs showing how wise and discerning he was. We come to 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 24. It says, the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom. The whole earth was looking towards the people of Israel, was looking to the city of Jerusalem, was looking to the tribe of Judah, was looking to Solomon, the son of David. The whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put into his mind. Is that sounding familiar, loved ones? We can compare what, what is being said here in 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 24 to a promise made in Genesis 22, verse 18. And in you, all your offspring, in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. It seems as though not only are the promises to David being fulfilled, not only are the promises to Moses, but even the promises that go all the way back to Genesis. I mean, this seems like Solomon is the one the temple is built. God's presence is there. All of the nations are being blessed through Solomon's wisdom. Beloved ones, this is the downfall of the dynasty. Look at the next chapter. Almost as soon as Solomon arrives at this, at this point, at this pinnacle, it says in 1 Kings 11, verse 1, it says, Now King Solomon loved many foreign women. You see, David's sexual immorality multiplied exponentially in the next generation in his son Solomon. David hadn't discipled his children well in terms of understanding marriage and sexuality and purity. And Solomon and the people of Israel paid the price as a result. Look at verse 3. He had 700 wives. That's a lot of anniversaries to remember who were princesses, 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. 
For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. This is the downfall. Solomon is starting to stumble and fall, just like David stumbled and fell. Again, this is not the way kings were supposed to live. Remember what it said in Deuteronomy chapter 17. We looked at this chapter when we were talking about Saul. Deuteronomy 17 verse 14, God says, When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you and you possess it and dwell in it and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. But look at verse 17. He shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. That's what Deuteronomy commands. And Solomon did the exact opposite of that. And Solomon, because he gave in to idolatry and sexual immorality, that also reverberated into other sins in his life. You know that Solomon actually enslaved the people of Israel to, to help build his kingdom? Forced labor and, and oppression of his own people became characteristic of his reign. One of the taskmasters, one of the, the rulers of the slaves, of the forced labor, was someone named Jeroboam who tried to oppose Solomon. But Solomon wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't tolerate any opposition to his rule and to his authority. So he sent Jeroboam down into exile. Then when Solomon dies at the end of chapter 11, his son Rehoboam takes his place. Jeroboam comes back from Egypt and he gathers together with a coalition of Israel's leaders. And look at 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 4 and 5. They say, your father made our yoke heavy. These are the people of Israel. They were under a yoke, under a yoke of slavery to their own king. Your father made our own yoke heavy. Now, therefore, lighten the hard service of your father. Solomon sounds more like Pharaoh at the end of his life. The hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. So Jeroboam, this is collective bargaining. He's, just, he's trying to establish a new way forward with, with this new king, Rehoboam. So Rehoboam says, give me a couple of days to think about it. He talks to um, the advisors that advise Solomon, his followers. Then he talks to the young men that he grew up with. Look down at verse 13. Then the king answered, this is King Rehoboam, he answered the people harshly. And forsaking the counsel that the old men gave him, he spoke to them according to the counsel of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy. I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So Rehoboam says, listen, if you, think, if you thought it was hard under Solomon, it's going to be even harder under me. This isn't about you and your happiness. This is about me and my kingdom. Loved ones, this is the downfall of the dynasty. Things are falling apart. So Jeroboam, it's kind of confusing because Rehoboam and Jeroboam like rhyme with one another. But Jeroboam, he goes off and starts his own country, Israel to the north and and. Rehoboam, now he used to lead the 12 tribes of Israel. Now he's just the king of one tribe, the tribe of Judah. So the country gets divided into two parts. Let me just show you. Here's a simple hand-drawn map just to sort of outline what happened. It used to be one united nation of Israel under David and under Solomon. 
And then Rehoboam messed the whole thing up. He had a chance to turn the nation around. Solomon had started the downfall, but Rehoboam persisted in Solomon's wickedness and evil. And so the country gets divided in two. The 11 tribes to the north are called Israel. The one remaining tribe, the tribe of Judah, remains under David's uh, dynasty. And as we follow the story, we see, we see in First and Second Kings, the story of 20 different kings in Israel, 20 different kings in Judah. As Second Kings, it sort of goes back and forth between the northern tribes and the southern tribe of Judah. And, and what we end up happening here is we see these 20 kings. Here's a little bit of a report card of how the different nations did in terms of kings. Israel to the north had zero good kings and 20 bad kings. And then Judah, to the, to the south, had eight good kings and 12 bad kings. And so there was a, a civil war between these two nations. They were often at war with one another. Sometimes there were times of peace, but the kingdom had become divided. And there were all of these bad kings to the north. The, north the, nor the downfall of the northern tribes happens faster and faster. And Jeroboam, the one who started this new country, was the one who really set the trajectory for, for this new country in the north. Look at 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 27. So Rehoboam, has, has, he's controlling the, the tribe of Judah to the south. This new country is being led by Jeroboam in the north. But Jeroboam starts thinking. He's looking at where the temple is. He's thinking about things geographically and politically. Look at, his, look at his reasoning in chapter 12, verse 27. He says, If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, not up north, but up the mountain to the holy city of Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So he's worried. He's like, well, if these people are going to keep worshiping God, they're all going to go back to the city of Jerusalem. They're all going to go back to the tribe of Judah, and their hearts are going to go back to Rehoboam. They're going to kill me. Verse 28, so the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. Now again, you don't have to know the Bible inside and out, back and forth to understand that that's a really bad idea. I mean, this is the base of Mount Sinai. This is Aaron when Moses was on top of them. Not just one calf of gold, he decides to make two calves of gold. And he said to the people, you've gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. It's like he's reading the script. He's reading, he's doing the same thing that Aaron did. This was the, the massive sin from Deuteronomy, from, from Exodus 32. And so the, the nation in the north, this is the trajectory that they were on. Idolatry and turning away from the Lord. Twenty evil and wicked kings. The most famous of them all was Ahab and his famous wife Jezebel. Now these two together led the nation into all kinds of idolatry and evil and wickedness. And God sent Elijah, the prophet, to confront Ahab and Jezebel. So let's turn now to 1 Kings chapter 
18, 1 Kings 18. There's a number of kings of Israel that we're going to skip over just for the sake of time. I just want to zero in on this one story. 1 Kings 18, verse 20, it says, Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. There was going to be this meeting, this confrontation on this mountain called Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people. So the prophets are there. Elijah is there. He's the only prophet that's actually seeking after God, or so he thinks. And then all the people are there watching. And Elijah came near to the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If, if, but if Baal, then follow him. Baal was the Canaanite God. And the people did not answer him a word. And then they set up these two big altars, these giant stone barbecues, and they put sacrifices on them. And then the, the, the prophets who served Baal, who served the false lowercase gods, they started praying and doing everything that they could to try to get the sacrifices to catch on fire miraculously. And nothing happens. Elijah starts mocking them. Well, maybe your God is asleep. Maybe you better go wake up Baal. Maybe, maybe, maybe he's gone off somewhere and he, he'll, be, he'll be back soon. And then, before Elijah has his chance to ask the one true God to miraculously set the sacrifice on fire, he tells them to pour water all over the altar. And all of this water, it's dripping wet. And then Elijah prays, and fire comes from heaven. Doesn't just light the sacrifice on fire. It consumes the very stones that made up the altar. And even with signs like that, the people to the north refused to believe. Elijah and his protege, Elisha, performed all kinds of signs and miracles. Some people think that today, if we could just see God do some more miracles, then more people would believe. If you think that, you need to read First and Second Kings. Because there's more miracles here than really anywhere else in the Bible besides Exodus and the Gospels. And yet they refuse to believe. I'm talking fire from heaven. I'm talking floating axe heads. I'm talking empty jars filling with oil. The little boy being raised from the dead. Invisible angel armies. Taking a, a, a leprous military leader from another nation and miraculously healing him. Striking enemies with, with violence. Bear attacks on people who make bald jokes. Watch yourself. And chariots of fire, miracle after miracle after miracle. It all happened in the northern kingdom and there was never repentance. And as the story progresses, again, while this is taking place, Jehoshaphat's keeping it real down in the southern kingdom. There's some good kings and some bad kings in the nation of Judah, but fast forward to the last king of Israel, King Hosea. So turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 17. 2 Kings chapter 17. And I want to plot this on a bit of a timeline for you. So let's go. Uh, let me show you another, uh, another slide here. So along the bottom, these are the books of the Bible. 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, and 2 Chronicles. They overlap with one another. Isaiah and Jeremiah. We'll get into that a little bit later. You see the United Kingdom, David, Solomon, and Rehoboam gets divided. We've talked about Jeroboam and Ahab. And now we're in the days of Hosea. And he gets attacked by the Assyrian army. And so th this is the end of the northern tribes. Look with me at 2 Kings chapter 17. It says, in the ninth year of Hosea, the king, 
the king of Assyria captured Samaria. Samaria was the capital city of the northern kingdom. That's where we get the term Samaritans from. This is where the Samaritans were from, the northern kingdom that rebelled against God. And he carried the Israelites away to Assyria. And notice, notice the commentary, the explanation in verse 7. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the, their God. Verse 13. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer saying, turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments. God sent prophets, prophets that you read about in 1st and 2nd Kings like Elijah and Elisha. Also prophets that, that you can read their own writings, prophets like Hosea, Hosea and Amos. These were prophets who were ministering in the north. Verse 14 says, but they would not listen but were stubborn as their fathers had been, who did not believe the Lord their God. They despised his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. They went after false gods and they became false. You know, you become what you worship. If you worship Jesus Christ, you will be conformed into his image. You will become more like him. But if you worship something that is false, you become false. If you worship a lie, you become a liar. If you worship something that is hollow and empty and superficial, you will become hollow and empty and superficial. They followed the nations that were around them concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. And so, let's look at the timeline again. The northern kingdom is now no more. Assyria has come and taken them away. But then we follow the line down. Right at the same time when Assyria was capturing the northern tribes, Hezekiah is the king in Judah. So that leads us to our second point today. The second point is this. The second stage of the story is exile from the promised land. Exile from the promised land. So meanwhile in the south, Hezekiah, he's one of the good kings. Now, we've already skipped over a number of good kings like King Asa and King Jehoshaphat, King Uzziah. We also skipped over the story of Queen Athaliah. It's a really nice sounding name, but she's Judah's only queen and she was an evil queen. She killed her own children and grandchildren to try to hang on to the throne for herself. But a, a little boy named Joash was hidden away and then presented as king a number of years later. So as we come to the story in 2 Kings, look at 2 Kings 18 and verse 12, you'll see that the Assyrian army had already conquered all of the fortified cities of Judah. There's one city left, and that's the city of Jerusalem. And in 2 Kings 19, the Assyrian army has flattened all of the northern tribes, now they are in Judah. They have conquered all of the fortified cities. The, La the Alamo, the last outpost, is the city of Jerusalem. And then this, this political military leader named the Rabshakeh starts coming and he starts, he starts negotiating out loud in front of everyone with King Hezekiah, warning him, telling him that the Assyrians are coming. In 2 Kings 19, verse 1, it says, As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. 
He saw, he saw the, the division. He saw the destruction. He saw the disobedience. He knew what was coming and he fled to the presence of the Lord. He sought the Lord in prayer. Loved ones, when we see what's happening in our culture, when we see what's happening in our church, we have one place and one place to go into the presence of the Lord to seek his face in prayer. We're hoping to do that this week, Wednesday night, March the 10th. Join us online for our prayer meeting. He sought the Lord in prayer. Verse 2, he also sought counsel and he sent Eliakim who was over the household and Shebna the secretary and the senior priest covered with sackcloth to the prophet Isaiah. You see, Isaiah, his book appears later, but he as a character appears in the story of Second Kings. So, Hezekiah is surrounded. The Assyrian army is coming for the city of Jerusalem. Hezekiah is praying. He's talking to the prophet Isaiah. There's multiple communication, orally, letters being written between the Assyrians, between Jerusalem, between, between Hezekiah and, and Isaiah. They're talking to the Lord. There's all of this communication. We come to the end of chapter 19, and Isaiah has a response for Hezekiah. He says, 2 Kings 19, verse 32, Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city. But he, he's, he's, he's right at the door. He's got them surrounded. But God says, he shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with shield or cast up a siege mound against it. Verse 13, verse 33. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return and he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord. Verse 34. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake. And for the sake of my servant, David. You see, God had made a promise to David. God had made a promise that the, the city of Jerusalem, the temple of God, that these would be the places where God's name would dwell. And remember, in the midst of disobedience and division and defeat among God's people, that cannot stop the permanence and power of God's promises. That nothing can stop the permanence and power of God's promises. God says it's not going to happen. I know, I know it looks like you're all surrounded. I know it looks like it's over, but it's not over. This is not endgame. It, it, it's not over. Verse 35, And that night the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 of the camp of, of the Assyrians. And when the people arose early in the morning, behold, these all were dead bodies. Hezekiah was gearing up for this massive battle that the city was going to be under siege. And in one instant, God struck down almost 200,000 foot soldiers. But life was not easy for Hezekiah moving forward. In the very next chapter, he gets sick. He prays to the Lord. Again, he seeks God face in prayer. He seeks counsel. These are things that we should do when we're struggling. Pray to the Lord and seek counsel. He goes to Isaiah. What's going to happen? Isaiah tells him that he's going to survive. And when Hezekiah is feeling better, these people come and visit him from this far-off nation called Babylon. And Babylon was not a significant world power at the time. They came to say, hey, Hezekiah, we heard that you were sick. And then Hezekiah goes and shows them all of the different treasuries. He shows them the temple. He shows them all of his wealth and his palace and all of these things. And look at 2 Kings chapter 20, verse 16. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord. 
Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. Now, this would have been really confusing for Hezekiah because he was worried about who? About the Assyrians. The Babylonians weren't even on his map. But remember, God sees into the future. And God knew that this little insignificant country known as Babylon was going to grow into a world power, would defeat the Assyrians, and would also, just like the Assyrians came and had the city of Jerusalem surrounded, they will come and surround the city. But Jerusalem will not be spared this time. This is what Isaiah said to Hezekiah. This is a major turning point in the story. This this attack from the Assyrians that's failed, and then this visit from the Babylonians, this is a crucial moment in the storyline of Scripture. So much so that this story is not only retold in 2 Kings and in, uh, in, in 2 Chronicles, it's also this story can be found almost word for word right in the center of the book of Isaiah. In fact, this is a turning point in the book of Isaiah. Let me show you. Isaiah 39, verses 5 and 6. I'll show you this on the screen. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried off to Babylon. That's word for word what we just read out of 2 Kings. Chapter 20, verse 16 and 17, isn't it? But then chapter 40 begins. Now, we, we love to read chapter 40 of Isaiah. We, we, we love, but we don't always think about it in its context. Then he's, the very next thing he says is comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Why? Why do they need to be comforted? Because he's speaking to the generation that's going to experience the Babylonian exile. And then he says, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. A way back from Babylon. That's what the whole second half of Isaiah, I mean, some of our favorite chapters in all of the Old Testament, is all spoken at this point in time. Yes, God rescued us from the Assyrians, but something worse is coming, the Babylonians. But I want to comfort my people. And even when they're taken in exile, prepare a way in the wilderness for the Lord. They will have the opportunity to return. So we've come now really to the end of, of the, the northern tribes. We've, we've, the writing is sort of on the wall for the southern tribes in, in Judah. And I want to take you now into the book of Second Chronicles. As I said, First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles overlap with one another. Turn with me to the very end of uh, Second Chronicles. After Hezekiah, there are some of Judah's best kings and some of their worst kings. Some of their worst kings like Manasseh and then some of their best kings like Josiah. You can read about them on your own time. And just as Isaiah had prophesied, the Babylonians defeated Assyria and they came after the city of Jerusalem and they took some of them away and they went into exile. And Jeremiah now has taken over as the prophet. And Jeremiah, still living in Jerusalem, recognizing that people have already gone to live in Babylon. These are people like Daniel, Shadrach, Abednego, and, and all of those, Meshach. And they are now living in Babylon. And Jeremiah writes to them in Jeremiah 29, 10 and 11. Jeremiah says, For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill my promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil. To give you a future and 
a hope. You see, that's one, again, one of our favorite verses, isn't it? Jeremiah 29, 11. And we think about it, we, we just read verse 11, and we don't read verse 10, and we don't think about how it fits in with the rest of the story. Jeremiah just told them, you're going to be there for 70 years. We read Jeremiah 29, 11 and think all our problems are going to be solved by Tuesday. That's not, that's not how it works. Loved ones, Jeremiah 29, 11 tells us that even though we live in a world filled with disobedience and division and defeat among God's people, that does not take away from the permanence and power of God's promises. And really it's true that when our circumstances in our lives get darker and more painful, that is when God's promises shine brighter and clearer. So Jeremiah, in, in context here, is telling them, listen, you are, it's going to be hard. You're going to live in Babylon for 70 years. That's a whole other generation. You're, really, your grandkids are really going to be the ones who see this fulfilled. But I will come and get you. And, and I will restore you to this land. And I do have plans for you to prosper you and to give you a future. You see, my, part of my heart for the Storyline of Scripture series is that we would take these little pieces of the puzzle that we love so much, verses like Jeremiah 29, 11, stories like David and Goliath, and that we would put them in their proper context. That we would understand that, that yeah, the, the Christian life sometimes is filled with defeat. Sometimes it's filled with discouragement and with confusion. And that's when the promises really take hold in our lives. So now we come to the end of 2 Chronicles chapter 36. And the downfall of the Davidic dynasty is almost complete. Look with me at 2 Chronicles 36 and verse 15. It says, The Lord... The, the God of their fathers sent persistently to them by his messengers. Messengers like Isaiah, messengers like Jeremiah, messengers like so many of the minor prophets. Notice this, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. God's concerned about the people. God's concerned about the place. More about that later. But they kept mocking the messengers of God. Read the book of Jeremiah. Look at how he was treated. Look at how people responded to him. He was called the weeping prophet. He wrote the book of Lamentations for a reason. Because everyone rejected him. It says, until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people, until there was no remedy Therefore, he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, that's Babylon, who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or aged. He gave them all into his hand. Verse 18, and the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of God, and the treasures of the king and of his princes, all these he brought to Babylon. This is the exile. And they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious vessels. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia. More about that in another message. Verse 21, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah. Again, we have the book of Jeremiah, but then we also have Jeremiah appearing in 2 Chronicles. They overlap with one another until the land enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that, lay, that it lay desolate to keep its Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. 
So this was to fulfill what Jeremiah predicted specifically. But also when we go back, when we think about what we studied so far in the storyline, this was predicted in Deuteronomy chapter 29 and 30 before they even moved into the promised land. This was predicted in Leviticus chapter 26 when they were still at the base of Mount Sinai erecting the, 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 the tabernacle and learning how to offer these sacrifices. God told them, listen, you're going to disobey me and you're going to be in a foreign land, but I will come back and get you. You see, God makes these powerful predictions and prophecies that, that are fulfilled. He also works in patterns and the story kind of keeps getting retold, but the story gets bigger and more beautiful as, as, as the story unfolds. Let, let me show you what I mean. Let me just outline it for you here on one more little hand-drawn uh, diagram. This is a familiar story that we see in the Old Testament. God's people are removed from God's place because of sin, but God makes a promise. Think back to the, God, the Garden of Eden. God's people, Adam and Eve, are removed from God's place, the Garden of Eden, for the sin of eating the fruit. But God makes the promise of the offspring of the woman who will crush the serpent. And now we have God's people, Israel, being removed from God's place, the promised land, for sin, worshiping idols. But God makes a promise that they will return from exile and get a new heart and have a new covenant and a new creation. And that leads us to our third and final point, a new a promise of a new beginning. A promise of a new beginning. So now what I want to ask you to do is to turn in your Bible, skip over the book of Ezra and Nehemiah that, and Esther. That wraps up the rest of the history section. We'll get to that later. Skip over Job, Psalms, and Proverbs. That's the poetry section. And now we're going to look at the book of Isaiah. Turn to Isaiah 43, verse 16 and 19. Isaiah 43, 16 and 19. Isaiah says, thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. What's he describing there? He's describing there the, the Red Sea. He made a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters. That's the way through the Red Sea. Then the chariot, the horse, that's the Egyptians all being destroyed. Verse 18 says, Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do not perceive it. I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The same God who brought the people out of Egypt, he's also saying, I will bring them out of Babylon. And what we see in this promise of a new beginning, we see three things. You can jot these down. We see a new exodus. We see a new covenant and we see a new creation. A new exodus, a new covenant, and a new creation. Turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 16. Jeremiah is the very next book after Isaiah. Jeremiah chapter 16 and find verse 14. Jeremiah 16 and verse 14. Jeremiah says, Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it shall no longer be said, as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt... But as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the north country, that's Babylon, and out of the countries where they had driven them, for I will bring them back to their own land that I gave to their fathers. He promises a new exodus. We're not going to talk about the exodus. I'm going to do something even greater. We're not going to talk about the plagues or any of that anymore. We're not going to talk about the Red Sea anymore. We're going to talk about the way that I made a way through the wilderness to rescue the people back from Babylon. 
Secondly, he promised a new covenant. Stay in the book of Jeremiah and look at Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31. He promises a new covenant. In Jeremiah 31, he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declared the Lord. Let's get this diagram on the screen. Remember, all of the covenants in Scripture go right down to the bottom. This is a new covenant that God is promising in Jeremiah 31. He says it's not like the covenant of Moses. The covenant of Moses was bilateral, which they broke. And God is saying, no, I'm going to do a new thing. This is a new covenant. Eyes back on the text now. Verse 33 For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. He's going to transform their hearts. Remember how he said that the the exile had been predicted and prophesied all the way back in Deuteronomy. And God said in Deuteronomy chapter 30 verse 6, let me show you this on the screen, that when they come back, God said, the Lord God will circumcise your heart. He's going to change your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Back to Jeremiah 31. God's going to change the heart. He says, I will, in verse 33, I will put my law within them. I will write it on their heart. And then look at the end of verse 34. He says, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. How will he forgive their iniquity? We'll turn with me back to the book of Isaiah and Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53. A familiar text. Isaiah 53 verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jeremiah 31, he says, I will forgive their iniquity. How will he forgive their iniquity? He will forgive their iniquity because he will send his son, Jesus Christ, who will be crushed for our iniquities, who will be wounded so that we will be healed, who will bear that punishment that penalty. This is how the new covenant is established. This is why Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took the bread and said, this is my body. And then he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Loved ones, we're reading the Old Testament. Testament means covenant. New New Testament. Testament means covenant. The New Testament is the new covenant in Christ, prophesied by Jeremiah and by Isaiah. We have a, we have a new exodus Loved ones, we have a new covenant through Christ's blood that changes our hearts. And then lastly, a new creation. A new creation. Two more passages for us to turn to. One in Isaiah 65 verse 17. Coming to the end of Isaiah, the end of this message. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. God's going to do a new exodus He's going to establish a new covenant. He's going to change us. He's going to give us new hearts. And when we have new hearts, we'll be able to live in a new creation. And then Isaiah 66 at the very end, Isaiah 66, 22, For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring, there's that key word, offspring, and your name remain 
from new moon to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath, notice this, all flesh will come to worship before me, declares the Lord. God is going to establish a new creation. And in that new creation, he invites people from all flesh, every tribe and tongue and nation. The story has been laid out. We are told how it's going to end. There's going to be a new exodus. That's already happened. There's going to be a new covenant that has already happened. And we await the new creation. And all flesh, people everywhere are invited to believe in Jesus Christ. To, to place their faith in him, to believe that when he died, lo loved ones, we're not just, I hope you're not just reading this story about this dramatic downfall and, and thinking, wow, that was too bad that that happened for them. Those leaders really failed. Loved ones, this is our story. We've all failed in this way. We've all committed adultery and, and, and idolatry. We, we've all sinned. Jesus ramps up the, the, the intensity of what it means to sin. To, to call your brother a fool is like, is like murdering. To look at a woman with lustful intent is like committing uh, uh, adultery. And so, loved ones, all of us have sinned. All of us have broken the covenant. But God has made this new covenant and made a promise for us to have new hearts if we place our faith in him. So if you haven't yet turned to admit that you're a sinner, just like David and Solomon and Hezekiah, all of, they're all sinners. And if you haven't believed that Jesus Christ is the long-promised offspring of David, the Messiah, the true King, then believe in him, confess your sins to him, and commit to follow him as Lord. If you haven't done that, you can make that decision today. If you have done that, then now is the time for you to reflect and remember, not just on this part of the storyline, but on your own story, your own yard sale, the, your own times where you've fallen and it's fallen apart on you. And remember that disobedience, division, and defeat cannot stop the power of God's promises towards you. And that even when things get difficult, even when things get painful, loved ones, that God's promises are more clear and more precious. May Jesus, may you see Jesus more clearly and may you treasure him as more precious today. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these stories. We thank you that over the course of history, you have proven to be so faithful to your people. Lord, we thank you that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of all of your promises. We saw so many partial fulfillments with the construction of the temple and the reign of Solomon where it's partially fulfilled, Lord. But everything, Lord, we are your temple. Christ is the ultimate king. Lord, draw us closer and closer to you, we pray. May we treasure Jesus as more precious. May we see Jesus more clearly. Lord, we love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.